0: What does a lack of honesty with ourselves and others look like? What does the program teach us about the importance of honesty to our recovery? Welcome to episode 366 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Cass, Vicki, Jody, Maria, Colleen, and Mary. They use the donation button on our website. Thank you, Cass, Vicki, Jody, Maria, Colleen, and Mary for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends of family members, of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes, and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery.
1: Before we begin, we would like to state that, in this show, we represent ourselves rather than any 12-step program. During this show, we will share our own experiences. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life.
0: My name is Spencer. I am your host today. And joining me today is Esther. Welcome, Esther. From the other side of the world. Yes, indeed. Really, I feel like you should be the host because you put together this whole thing which I'm grateful for. It's nice to have somebody else do some of the lifting occasionally. <laughs> so thank you for that. You're welcome. You picked a reading to open with. Why don't you tell us about it? It's from
1: Intimacy and Alcoholic Relationships, page 47. I really love this book. It was one that got introduced to me by a fellow member, a kind of old-timer who is always a big proponent of some of the conference-approved literature that is not necessarily what we talk about in our meetings every week. This one is about honesty. When we walk into the rooms of Al-Anon, many of us are shocked at how openly and honestly other members share in meetings. In the alcoholic situation, this kind of directness was completely unheard of. We were much more used to hiding or masking our own thoughts and feelings, or bottling them up until we exploded. The others in our lives too likely had no better communication skills than we did. Sharing our thoughts and feelings with the alcoholic or others in our lives often resulted in being ridiculed, degraded, or simply ignored. Faced with such treatment, many of us shut down any impulse to share what was genuine about ourselves with those we love, much less anyone else. Others among us became compulsive truth-tellers, attempting to unburden ourselves on the nearest person, whether they were willing to listen or not. Unfortunately, Neither of these reactions actually helped us feel more accepted or loved. And then on page 49, after some of the quotes from members, there's a sort of solution presented to us. One of the core principles of the Al Anon program is rigorous self honesty. If we aren't dealing honestly with ourselves, we cannot deal with reality as it is. Hiding from the truth in denial and fear will only leave us trapped in an impossible situation. It is only through recognizing and acknowledging the truth that we become capable of making healthy decisions for ourselves.
0: I am reminded of some words from the AA Big Book. In the chapter, How It Works, in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it says, Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program. Usually, men and women who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. I've heard that read. I don't know how many times I have gone to open AA meetings. And that has always felt like a core of recovery, that self-honesty in the reading, the first reading we're shocked at how openly and honestly other members share in meetings. I don't recall feeling shocked necessarily But it certainly was different from what went on outside those rooms. And I think that example of other people making themselves so vulnerable really helped me to feel able to open up and to start sharing what was inside me, which is really a core, I think, to our recovery, you know?
1: Yeah, I agree. I remember being struck by not just that people were willing to share honestly, but how it came across so differently from the kinds of sharing that might occur outside the rooms. I remember thinking that people were sharing about such challenging circumstances, but with this kind of tone of peace and calm and quiet that just was not present in the kind of hyperactive outside world of crisis and all of these other things. That for me was one of the key differences. It was a space where people could share honestly without causing stress at the same time for everyone else in the room, which was just such a unique space.
0: Yeah. And there's this bit in the second paragraph about compulsive truth tellers attempting to unburden ourselves on the nearest person that's not my experience but i can totally see how these two extremes of just hiding everything or telling everything they're not healthy but it's interesting that that they come out of a very similar life experience of living With hiding and masking and bottling up and and not talking about what's really happening.
1: Yeah, it's almost as if by doing all of that bottling up, that stuff for many people, or at least certainly for me, it had to go somewhere, had to come out somewhere. And usually it did that in a way that caught me unawares and that I often regretted afterward because of the way it came out. And it almost felt like it was coming out despite me, like it was outside my control. And then I feel really bad afterward because there there were sometimes consequences for those accidental leaks, if you want to call them that.
0: For me, it was the rage reaction and and what you said about not being able to control it, not understanding why it happened, how it happened is totally in my experience there. So you brought this topic to me. I always like to ask when somebody brings me a topic. Well, what brought that up for you?
1: What brought it up for me, and it's been sizzling away in the background for a while for me, is that I have this new understanding of how important honesty is to my recovery Mm. based on things that I've learned from reading. Alan on literature things i've learned from hearing people sharing in meetings things i've heard from my sponsor from my other fellow members and also experiencing the direct rewards of new kinds of honesty Mm. while i've been working the steps at the same time i still have these tight ropes that i feel like i'm walking with certain areas of my life and the program that complicate my experience of honesty or complicate my understanding of what that actually means. So for example, none of my family of origin know that I'm in Al-Anon and I guess number one, I haven't gotten to the point in the steps where I do amends yet. So that may happen in that package. I don't know. But... It's a significant part of my life that I am omitting from significant people in my life.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: There's the principle and tradition and common understanding we all have about anonymity and safeguarding ourselves and others' identities in the program. That is also an essential aspect of the program that makes it safe and makes it Possible for people to, to do it in the first place. And for me, sometimes these two things seem to come at odds with each other in a way that I don't fully know how to make sense of yet in certain circumstances. For example, my partner, who is the person in my life who used to drink and is the reason I came into the program originally, has not had an opportunity to sit with me and my family of origin and introduce his background and provide context for this program of recovery that I'm in. My family are not very familiar with, I don't think that they knowingly know anybody who's an alcoholic or someone who calls themselves an alcoholic, and they don't have the language, they don't have the familiarity with the concept of addiction necessarily it's quite outside their realm of operating in the world it would be strange if i were to say i'm in this particular program of recovery without providing them <laughs> some kind of reason like who is the loved one
2: mm.
1: that mm. is is—is—is is a drinker or was a drinker that caused me to go in it because that would be perplexing for them and and then i'd be exposing my partner's anonymity in the other program right So that's a tricky one. And I've not done anything yet because my partner and I have not been able to see each other for 18 months due to COVID. And the plan, we had a plan was that when he was in early sobriety, we discussed that next time he would come to visit, we would both visit my, my family and he would be the first person to tell them his story. And then we would fill them in on where my program of recovery came into it. So we were going to have a sit-down conversation with my family. Now, obviously, this hasn't had an opportunity to happen, and both of us have had this major period where we have been in our separate programs doing recovery, which is a mixed blessing, I have to say, that we've not been able to have that conversation. And I, I have made a decision to wait until we can before I actually introduce that honesty to my family. And that's hard for me because I speak to them quite frequently and mm. they're important. And I spend a lot of my time and energy doing this progressive <laughs> recovery. It's a big part of my life and it's changed me and it's changed how I interact with them, but I don't feel able to speak about it yet. I know that this probably is a case of employing a very long version of the al pause, but it still feels like dishonesty by omission. Because I have this almost this kind of visceral feeling that's developed against omitting truth and omitting honesty and, and things of significance that I feel like I ought to be sharing with people. So that was one thing that was always there for the last while that made me feel like I, I, I made it a topic in a meeting recently that I was leading, for example, because I wanted to hear what other people had to say about their experience of honesty yeah so that's the sort of background, and then I thought about all these other realms where it's still a bit hairy sometimes, but that's the main one.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah One of the things that we often explore when we're looking at a topic is what it looked like before recovery, what it looked like growing up in adulthood, etc. For me, as a child, honesty was important. But it was often for me trumped by self-interest. I recall an incident when I was—I don't know—we'll say twelve. It's a good number. I wanted a, a particular model car. There was these plastic cars, and you could glue them together and paint them. And I wanted that, but I didn't have the money to buy it. And at Christmas time, I. Parents gave us money to go buy presents for the other people in the family, and I bought that thing for myself, wrapped it up, said it was from Santa Claus. I'm pretty sure they knew what happened. They weren't dumb people, but nobody ever said anything. So oh, I wonder who gave you that. Well, I didn't say anything. Well, that's the sort of thing, the sort of lies that I would tell as a child. When alcoholism came into my life, and you talk about lying by omission. There was this whole huge part of my life that I didn't talk about. How are you? Oh, fine. How are things? Fine. I remember we took a family vacation when my mother turned 70. She flew the whole family down to Florida for a week. This was during a time when my wife was still active in her alcoholism. And so. As normal people would do, we went to the, the liquor store, and we bought some wine, and I remember buying a bottle of gin, and we stuck it in the freezer, and lo and behold, after about two days, it was gone. And my father was like, you drank that all up already? I was like, yeah, okay, we're just going to know. So obviously, people noticed that there was some not normal drinking going on, but Neither I nor the rest of the family said anything more than that. And as it got worse and worse, my silence got silenter and silenter. And it took a while to undo that. But coming into the rooms and hearing other people talking honestly about what was going on in their lives and being able to talk about it myself definitely helped definitely. How about you before you came into recovery?
1: For me, honesty was on the one hand a a principle that I upheld fairly staunchly to the point where sometimes there were contexts where I was inappropriate according to social norms because I was that honest. I think that partly comes from growing up in a slightly confusing space with regard to honesty. It seemed that the household I lived in was very honest because people tended to speak their minds, at least on a day-to-day level, about day-to-day things. But there was a very large, ongoing, long-term lie that was happening in the house, which was that my dad was being unfaithful and living a double life for at least a decade. And that's only what I know. It could have been longer. And I only knew this because I overheard him on the phone to who m- must have been the, one of the people or the person he was seeing. While my mother was in the house a few rooms away, he was that confident that he could have this other existence removed from the trusting space and the trusting person that my mom was, that he would have a conversation on the phone with her while my mom was cooking for the family a few meters away, literally a few meters away. And when I was 13, and I remember this is the only time I ever cursed at my father, I went into his room when he got off the phone and I confronted him and I said, who the were you on the phone to? and Why were you talking to her like that? And when I thought about it in retrospect, I don't think I knew what an affair was at 13, actually. Like I'd never been exposed to that concept, but there was something instinctive in me that understood that there was something not right about my dad speaking to a woman like that who wasn't my mother. Mm -hmm. It was just an instinct. And the ease with which he was dishonest with me really took me aback and made me second guess what I'd heard and what I thought. He said, oh, it's just, you know, so-and-so's, I think he referred to a business partner's wife. And, and I was so confused and I left the conversation really discombobulated. The next morning, I remember saying to my girlfriends at school, I think my dad might be having an affair. Their reaction was, because you know, when you're at that age, you know each other's parents, you know each other's families. So they knew my father and their, their reaction was all the same when I told all of them separately. It was, Oh, your dad's so nice. He would never do anything like that to your mother. You must have misheard. So hearing from him that I misheard and hearing from my friends who I trusted that I misheard, I came to the conclusion that I must have misheard. And I, shelved it away for a decade. However, I don't believe I shelved it away completely because looking back on that period, I became a real teenage asshole to my dad. And it wasn't like I was doing that to my mom and I wasn't doing that to anybody else. I just became really mean to him and it just came out of me. And that happened for a few years. And then I just feel like the fact that when my mum found out that he had been unfaithful, when I was almost at the end of my undergraduate degree, so a really long time later, she was in such a state of shock and I was in such a state of shock that she didn't know during that time or ostensibly didn't know because I thought, I was a 13-year-old and I figured it out. How is it possible that the lie was able to sustain for this long? Without her knowing. And I wondered how much denial played a role in this because I know that her friends would question her trust of him because he was away a lot. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: she would always be very dismissive of that and say, Oh, no, I trust him completely. It's all fine. Everything's fine. And he really, he really took advantage of that trust and, yeah, managed to get away with this life for 10 years. At the same time, I remember him getting us into hot water when we were in public environments or with other family friends because he was the guy who was so blunt that he was too honest. So it was these two things happening simultaneously that day to day, he looked like a guy who could never possibly lie to anyone to the point of potentially offending people. And on the other hand, there was this giant lie that was under the entire life that we were leading, Hmm. which included the fact that any money that he had was going to this other person he was seeing and not being saved for us or anything like that. Like it was, there was a whole other set of layers to this lie. It wasn't just the affair. And my mom discovered them all at once, which was a horrendous shock for her. But this sort of long-term dishonesty had become so normalized that my brother and I still have never talked about what happened to this day. We've never had a conversation about it. And my brother was devastated when my dad left the house. It was like his happy family bubble had been burst. Whereas, because I was 13 when I discovered the lie, I didn't think there was a bubble to burst.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So, I, I was actually quite relieved when the truth came out in a way. I was very sad for my mom, but I was very relieved that this lie was no longer going to continue. But I had a combination of responses to this uh, very much in relation to that previous reading. I would swing wildly between being an oversharer who would get myself in trouble and have my foot in my mouth in several situations and then have to clean up after my mess because I said too much or said the inappropriate thing at the wrong moment. And on the other hand, just completely retreating and saying nothing and being in a state of hiding in a way because I was so afraid that I would mess up again. And it was quite a bad cycle. And of course, when alcoholism came into my life, active alcoholism, that really amplified those tendencies. I I remember that there were lies that I was told. And at the same time, while he was drinking, my partner, those were also the only times he was ever completely honest with me, because he couldn't help it. So I would get lying about the fact that he Drank, but then honesty about feelings for the first time. And then on the other hand, I was also responsible for keeping his secrets. And I was responsible for covering up for him when he didn't make it to work because we had the same workplace. And I, sometimes I did those things on request. Sometimes I did them not on request. (laughs) And sometimes I did them against the (laughs) requests that were made. Hmm. So I was actually, I was taking on a lot more of that responsibility than was actually being asked of me. And I've really figured that out when I was doing my step four writing. it's like, what's my part in this? Yeah, I did a whole bunch of things I wasn't asked to do, which included lying.
0: Yeah. You were being a a good codependent, as it were. I totally identify. The next step is we find recovery. We find a place where honesty is exhibited honesty is shared in a generally healthy way i think one of the one of the things in the rooms is we don't have a stake in the other people and they don't have a stake in us I don't have a stake in their lives. They don't have a stake in my lives. And so it's easier and emotionally safer to open up because one of the reasons for me to not be honest is my fear of reaction, my fear of blowback to what I might have to share that I'm pretty sure the other person's not going to like or I don't even know, but I'm afraid. When I'm in a meeting and in the meeting, the premise of anonymity, the premise that what I say here, what I hear here, what I see here stays here. Those two things together, I think encourage me for probably the first time in my life, to talk openly and honestly about those things that could feel so shameful. Yeah. How, what was your experience when you came into al and started hearing this open sharing, this honest sharing?
1: To begin with, I was in awe of how in touch with themselves people were. And I really took a while to be able to share from the heart in the way that i heard a lot of people doing and i was i will admit intimidated by it in a way which is related to things like pride ego fear of loss of those things what if i say something stupid but people were so sincere and earnest And not in a way that made me uncomfortable because those things could make me uncomfortable because I was very good at burying things. I wasn't good at being faced with people's feelings before I came into the rooms. And there I was being faced with all these strangers' feelings. It was amazing. And then I think for me, my experience that really started to transform my ability to be honest, both with myself first and foremost, and then gradually with others a little more was the step work that I was doing with my sponsor because I really had to, as I like to say, exercise that muscle for the first time in a major way. And it was difficult and I resisted it and I found it quite painful at times because I was finding myself looking at things about myself that I did not like. I did not like it. I did not like the things that were being revealed to me sometimes, but The sense of being more light afterward and that sense of being freed from things that I had been burying, which were apparently causing me a lot of, or they were adding a lot of weight to me, was incredible. Like that freedom became something that made me understand that working through the pain of some of the honesty was a necessary process for me to get recovered or begin to recover and. I remember the first time I did some writing before a meeting or a phone call with my sponsor. I did it on the computer and she told me to handwrite from then on. And I said, why? And she said, building on my experience, which is the way that I'm telling you to do the things that I did that worked for me, she said, I wasn't able to lie to myself when I was handwriting. <laughs> I couldn't edit myself in the same way. And the truth, more readily came out in handwriting. So I want you to try that too. And so I've been doing that ever since. I have notebooks and notebooks worth of handwritten notes, which is tricky for me because I can't sometimes read my own handwriting. Oh, <laughs> sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, you've got the same, do you?
0: Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm showing you this on the <laughs> sure. screen, which people listening aren't going to be able to see, but I can usually understand what it was that I wrote. But I totally get what your sponsor was saying about not being able to edit yourself. Yeah. Because you saw it's written in ink. So I can't erase it. I can cross it out, but I can't erase it. And so I think you're right. I think she's right. It's a lot harder to lie in writing. And I encourage my sponsors, When they're working a step, when they're working an issue to write. Because yeah, my experience is not only can't I lie to myself in writing as easily, at least I mean, I'm sure I can, but even as I'm putting the words down, I'm feeling like this isn't right. (laughs) What's coming out of my pen here is not right. It helps me to actually Think about how I would answer a question or how I would write down an idea. When it's in my head, I can kind of gloss over it. I can look at one of those questions in in one of our workbooks and say, "Oh yeah, blah 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 blah." Done. When I actually have to put words on paper, it's not that easy. I really, I do have to dig in, and so that's a great tool I think that she brought to you and that somebody Mm. brought to me Mm. because when I first started working the steps I bought one of those books and I bought a book that it's a bound blank book with lined paper in it but it's pretty and I did that because I felt this was important work and it deserved Something that I enjoyed looking at, that I enjoyed handling, rather than a spiral-bound notebook like I would have used in my grade school or something. But the key about not editing, I hadn't thought about that, but that's really good. I was thinking about like the progression of practicing honesty, and and I was thinking about how the steps help me with that at least. So in step one, I'm asked to get honest about one thing. I'm asked to get honest about my powerlessness over the effects of alcohol on the person that I love. Maybe two things. Cause I'm also asked to admit honestly that my life is unmanageable. Okay. So that wasn't real hard. The second part in particular for me, cause man, my life was a mess. And then. When we get to step four, I'm asked to be as honest as, and thorough as I can in inventorying my character traits, the way I worked it, writing them down. I know our literature encourages us to write. From the Paths to Recovery reading on step four has, I think, a couple paragraphs about writing your inventory, okay? But I don't have to reveal it to anybody yet. So I get some practice being honest with myself and I don't know about you, but my first fourth step, there was some stuff that was deliberately not in there. I kind of knew that it belonged. And then there was some stuff that I didn't even remember that came up later. Okay. But I tried to be as thorough and honest as I could. And then in step five, we're asked to be honest about all the things we did wrong with somebody else. So the steps bring us into this gradually, but in step five, we can pick a safe person. We're encouraged to pick a safe person, somebody who understands what we're doing and is not going to judge us so we can feel a little safer going into it. And then we get to step nine. And in step nine, we're actually asked to be honest with the people that we hurt. So we've built up this practice of broadening the scope and the people with whom we're honest. Again, the reading that I'm familiar with on step nine was like, yeah, we know you're not going to do this with everybody right away. We know there's going to be people that you just aren't ready to be totally honest with about the ways in which you harmed them. But you really need to do it eventually. You know They need to be on the list and you need to be ready to do it when you're ready. And then we have step 10, which is the continual practice of being honest with ourselves in a daily inventory or whatever frequency we actually end up doing it with. And being honest with the people around us about the ways in which we were wrong. I really like... The process, I mean, it's not exactly gentle, but at least it gave me room in which to grow. It gave me room in which to develop the ability to be honest, open, and willing in larger and larger circles. Yeah, it started with just in the rooms, just in the meeting, just with a sponsor or another al friend, but it has grown. So I don't know if your experience looked like that or not. What did your experience look like? What does it look like? I mean, it's never over, right?
1: It's never over. That's for sure. Step four feels like it's never over for me. (laughs) I'm uh, still doing it. Searching and fearless, as they say. Part of it is because I need to take breaks between weeks just because of how my life looks. But part of it is also that the method that my sponsor did is really thorough. I think she said it took her two years to do her first step four as well. And so I'm doing what she did in a sense. But it's interesting because some of the people who I was in step four with are now down at step nine doing amends and sharing with me their experiences of doing amends. And it's it sounds as much fear as they have potentially going into the experience. They, they come out lighter, rewarded in almost every case. And that's even if the person who they made amends to was not doing the thing that they wanted them to do ideally or respond the way that they wanted to respond. And it's really it's heartening to hear those stories. It's probably a long way down the road for me, but I currently definitely feel like I'm starting to practice the principle of honesty in perhaps most of my affairs, maybe not all of my affairs, and in a way that is causing less damage than it would have done in the past, partly because I'm capable of foreseeing the consequences of being reactive, which is the main issue of my previous versions of oversharing. It was a reactive type of honesty. I was often told by people that I was disarming, that I was easy to talk to, and that I made it easy for other people to talk. And that was a nice thing to hear, of course. But that was frequently in reassurance when I was panicking about having put my foot in my mouth in a particular situation, whether it was work or whether it was social or whether it was work social, as those two things would combine as well. But now I'm better with this. And yeah, for me, the pause, the Al-Anon pause, bringing my higher power with me into situations that are difficult is the key to the balance between being honest in the appropriate way and being an oversharer so for example at a meeting a few weeks ago i got reactive in the way that i would have done more pre recovery i was unhappy with something systemic that was happening and None of my immediate colleagues seemed to be particularly bothered by it in the same way that I was, which I know is partly to do with their need to psychologically survive the workplace because they plan to stay in it. I do not. I don't tell them that, but I do not. And I was reactive and I let some things fly that were honest, but also made me feel quite uncomfortable afterward. And I realized that feeling was a feeling I hadn't felt in a while, which was I let out too much. I was too reactive. I said negative things. I probably brought the mood down. All of these things, I, I really talked myself into a bit of a state after that. It probably wasn't as bad to them as it felt for me, as is often the case with these things. But that is not, for me, the kind of honesty that Alanon is teaching me how to enact day to day the kind of honesty is that if i'm asked for my view in that kind of meeting i will be honest about what that view is but there will also be boundaries around it and those boundaries will be about keeping myself safe and also not causing harm to others that's the tricky part sometimes with honesty for me yeah yeah sometimes Honesty can cause harm to others. Two weeks later, I was in another meeting where I could feel the same raw emotions coming up, but I had consciously brought my higher power into that meeting with me before the meeting because I knew that it was going to be another difficult one. And I knew that I was feeling a bit vulnerable and that I could be reactive when I was feeling vulnerable. So, yeah, my higher power was with me in that meeting and I actually consciously in my head prayed while i was having that raw reaction like in myself while i was feeling those raw emotions i consciously contacted my higher power <laughs> didn't say a word which felt very different from burying and denial because what i was asking my higher power for was help to know what to do or help to not be reactive and not harm others or just help. So I didn't say anything. And I think it possibly weirded people out, but I also had to let that go. I had to let go of the possibility of other people's responses to my doing what I needed to do. And I had to let go of the obsession with reading into other people's reactions to everything I do because that's an obsessive tendency I have where I'm like reading between the lines of people's body language and facial expressions and being really paranoid that I've upset somebody or said the wrong thing. you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I just, I had to let that go too because it was important for me in that meeting to not say anything and my higher power helped me with that. And then the meeting ended earlier than it would have otherwise. That was the beauty of it. <laughs> so the pain was over quicker.
0: Oh, yeah. The importance of boundaries, I think, comes in there. Like you set a boundary on yourself. And you talked about the pause to be able to ask and answer the question, is this Actually, something I need to say right now. I spoke in the, in the podcast a few episodes ago, I guess it was, about this technique that a friend of mine told me where he mutes himself in online meetings. In an Al-Anon meeting, it goes without saying, but in a work meeting, if I mute myself when I'm not talking then I have to make a conscious decision to say something. And if I just blurt something out, nobody hears it. So that, that helps me with the, it, whether it's oversharing or just stupid reacting. It helps with that recognition and decision process that I find one of the keys for me in steps six and seven of becoming aware of a shortcoming that would like to have reduced, removed, whatever, and then practicing new behavior. When I can become aware of the behavior, I was listening to a non-recovery podcast. I don't remember what it was now, but the person was talking about Recognizing behavior after they did it and then starting to recognize behavior as they were doing it and hopefully eventually getting to the point of recognizing it before they do it. Whatever I can do to put a little barrier in there helps me with that transition at least from during to before so that then I can act in a way that is more the way that I want to be.
1: Yeah. I also learning how to see these situations as learning experiences for my honesty with myself, because the things that were difficult about those meetings were legitimate issues with the workplace that are difficult (laughs)
3: Mm -hmm.
1: that I believe it's, Reasonable to have feelings about. It's a question of how and where <laughs> and when I say something about that. And when is it actually helpful to say something about that? And it is at some point. But is it that meeting then, now? Mm-hmm. You know? And what about the courage to change the things I can? I can't change this big systemic thing in this small meeting with my immediate colleagues right now if I'm reactive about it. But is there some other way I can act in relation to this issue in a different space or a different time that, that I can actually do something about, or at least take steps to do something about? Because of course the outcome is out of my hands. So when I'm faced with real challenges at work that reinforce My current truth, which is this workplace is not the best one for me and I need to find another one gradually. Those are actually quite helpful moments now, as hard as they are, because they're like my higher power saying, trust your instinct. (laughs) I'm going to give you another kind of harsh example of why you should be trusting your instinct. Here, have 10 of them. Sometimes I don't get the message right away or I don't want to see the message right away, but I'm seeing the message now. and that's. That really helps. It helps if I look at it that way as opposed to just another difficult day or another difficult thing. That is a new kind of honesty with myself that is not the kind that it's just negative reinforcing because it's easy to get stuck in that negative space when my honesty is leading me down the road of everything's terrible, (laughs) you know? So, yeah. yeah.
0: We talked earlier about Dishonesty by omission and and in particular this context of not talking about being in recovery with your family. I didn't really have that choice because the the break became pretty obvious pretty quickly when my wife went away for four months to a residential treatment program. It was pretty obvious she wasn't there. And I think as I recall, I brought the kids to be with my parents for a couple of weeks so I could have a break. So after I started into recovery, I didn't have that issue, but certainly beforehand, as I mentioned, but there are other places in my life where I'm still, and I I think this gets to this question of honesty versus oversharing. So we went into lockdown, whatever you want to call it, a year and a half ago now. And we started having meetings from home. We started having Zoom meetings or whatever technology it was that we were using at the time. We've been through several at my workplace. And people would say, wow, Spencer, you got a fancy setup there. And I was comfortable enough at this point after doing this podcast for not quite 10 years. Is that right? Yeah, it'll be nine at the end of this year. Yep. Anyway, after doing this podcast for a while, I'm reasonably comfortable with saying what I'm doing. And so I would say I have a podcast and sometimes people would be like, what is it? And I would say well, it's 12 step recovery for people whose lives have been affected by somebody's drinking or drugging. Usually the response is, Oh, it's not that response that I thought I was going to get. Like, what? It's, it's very often, Oh, and sometimes it's, Oh, Alan, oh, there's somebody who knows. <laughs> When I could go out and do things out in the world, I would typically record this podcast on a weekend. And then Monday nights were my nights to go to a local bar that had live music every Monday. And I would bring along my laptop and I would be working on editing the podcast, depending on the music. Okay? If it was music that didn't really engage me, I could work on editing the podcast while I was out of one ear listening to the music and the other ear listening to the the podcast. And occasionally people come by and say, what you doing? So, well, I got a podcast. Okay. And they're like, what's the podcast? And I'd say, it's 12 step recovery. And they'd look at me and the beer sitting next to me and they're like, what? (laughs) But I remember having this conversation with one of the bartenders and he said, oh, Al-Anon. And it's like, I make assumptions about what people are going to think about me and what their experience is. And being sufficiently open brings me to understand that i don't know jack about other people what's really going on in their life and what they're going to think about me because that's where my fear is right my fear is what are you going to think about me if i reveal this thing and so i i have been you know practicing this not omitting this thing that's a significant part of my life right not omitting that when it's Appropriate. It's it's not like I sit down and, and start talking to a stranger, and the first thing that comes out of my mouth is, "Oh, by the way, I'm an Alanon." That's the oversharing part, right? But I'm also not hiding it when it is relevant to talk about it, and I think that for me is healthy honesty, not lying by omission, kind of thing. We had a, another example in the family recently where one of my kids is trans came out to us as trans is now going by a new name a new pronoun is actually working on getting everything changed in the legal system but my family of origin didn't know this partly we felt it would confuse my mother who has dementia and we'd have to explain it over and over again i think she would accept it but she would forget and if we're talking about this child by a different name. She's going to be, well, who's that? We were visiting recently with, with my siblings and my mother. And when we talked about this child, we, in the expression that I only learned recently, we dead named him using the previous name and the previous gender in that conversation because he was not out to that part of the family, but we had also talked with my son, about the fact that we felt that during this visit was the time to to come clean. The kid didn't come with us. It was just me and my wife. So I had a conversation with my siblings and said, this is what's up. And they're like, oh, okay. And they had some questions because people do. And it was no big deal. We still haven't told my mother and I don't think we will because like I said, it wouldn't make a positive difference, I think, right? Now, if my son comes along with us on a trip, that's going to be a different matter. But on the other hand, I was there once, and I came into my parents' bedroom to adjust their thermostat or something. And after I left, I I heard my mother talking to my father, who was still alive at the time, and, and she said something about, that man came in for something. So she doesn't always know who I am. But it, it just, it felt, it felt hard. It felt wrong maybe and the whole business of having to keep separate realities in my head depending on what context i was in is just something that i don't want to have to do anymore and that really is one of the joys of working towards living a life of honesty and openness that i don't have to be a different person depending where i am you know what I mean?
1: Sure. I really relate to that. I had a s- sort of uh, experience or a glimpse of what it would be like to have total honesty with my family a couple of times over the last few years. And in those glimpses, it was like a large weight had been taken off me, and their reactions or responses were never as bad as I had imagined. In some cases, they were much, much better than what I could have imagined. And it brought us closer in those moments. I had glimpses of that. I had evidence that this could be true, that honesty could actually be rewarding, even if it was on something that seemed to be impossible to be honest about. In my case, it was about that I had been in a open marriage with my ex-husband or a polyamorous relationship and that the end of our marriage was not because of that but was part of that story so they were confused about the end of my marriage because they they did not know that we were doing that and they also did not know that we had other issues that had been sizzling along in the background because we hadn't been sharing that with them Mm -hmm. but because my mother hadn't heard any of the Incremental stories leading to the end of the marriage. All she saw was the end of the marriage, and she freaked out. <laughs> she couldn't handle it. She was like, oh, "You're just that that generation that don't that you don't resolve your arguments. You just mm. break up." Yeah, it was like a kind of um, a commentary on that we're commitment phobes or whatever it might be. You know, and this is after ten years of being together. We, we were married for five, but we were together for around ten. Yeah. And what was interesting about that. Judgment. I was in a different country. I was not even in the country I was living in. And I was on a bad line to her when I had to tell her that this had happened. And (sighs) she reacted really poorly. For the first time in my life, I was really honest with her. And I said, I can't handle your feelings as well as my feelings right now about this breakup. I actually need you to come to terms with it first. And then be prepared to listen to what I have to say about it before you react. And if you're not ready to do that yet, that's okay. But don't be in touch with me, please, until you are. I've never been that direct with something so difficult. And it felt really hard to say that. But I also had to do it because I was dealing with a breakup of my marriage and I couldn't handle also managing my mother's reaction to that (laughs) yeah and this is pre-alanon but i recognized that this is not the moment for me to try and manage other people's feelings even if it's someone i care very much about like my mother and she respected it she actually respected it and she contacted me a couple of weeks later and said okay i think i'm ready to talk now and to listen so we had a long Skype session. I took a day off work so I could have a long Skype session with her because of the time difference. I told her everything and she didn't interrupt me once, which is not typical in my family. It was incredible. I also, at the start of that conversation, explicitly asked her to please not interrupt me, which I had never said before. And then I said, okay, now you can ask me anything you want at the end of that. And we had an open conversation where I said, do you think I'm crazy? Because I also told her about the open relationship. I sort of went into I want my mother's approval mode and she tried to find out how much she disapproved of this thing. And she said, I might think you're a little bit crazy, but whatever makes you happy and fulfilled, I'm just glad you're okay. That's all she wanted to know at the end of the Mm -hmm. day. I think her reactiveness and denial came from a fear that I was going to be by myself and sad at the end of the day. Number one, even if I was by myself, That's not a problem for me. I'm quite capable of being by myself and not sad. But I was neither of those things in this instance. Once she learned that, she was very relieved and just was over whatever the reaction was, it just went away. And that came from me being very direct and honest and In a way, firm, like having boundaries for the first time with my mother in a way I hadn't before. Asking her to please not contact me until she was ready to listen. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's some strength there. And some self-understanding, self-recognition to know that you needed to ask that.
1: Definitely. And it came, interestingly, like a lot of the things that come out of, for me, or came out of early recovery, which is desperation. Like, I need to look after myself right now because I'm not really okay in this moment. And therefore, here are the limits of what I can handle. Because I know with my family, we are very codependent and we're very enmeshed with our emotions. Historically, if one of us is not doing well, everybody else is not doing well. And I was not prepared to have that happen in that moment. Yeah, that was a significant one for me.
0: Which brings us back around to, I think, the, for me, one of the most important kinds of honesty that I've really learned in recovery is the, is the self honesty. The ability to, to at least some of the time look into myself and see the reality of why I'm, Reacting the way I'm reacting, why I'm feeling the way I'm feeling. Because without that, there's no hope of changing the things I still don't like. It seems to make me a person that other people like better too. So that's a nice side effect. Agreed. Anything more you want to add here?
1: I picked today's reminder from Courage to Change, June, June 23. I know that honesty is an essential part of the 12 steps. I am willing to be more honest with myself today. And from Cicero, where is there dignity unless there is honesty?
0: Very nice. After a short break, we will continue with our lives in recovery, where we'll talk about how recovery is working in our daily lives and in our meetings. You picked all the music for this episode. What's got for us first?
1: First one is Aretha Franklin's Truth and Honesty. I partly picked it because of its mood. It's really uplifting. And I love the mood matches that sense of lightness that comes when honesty works and when honesty is rewarded in Alanon. And I love the song kind of talks about the promise of honesty setting you free. It actually explicitly talks about that, that honesty sets you free in the lyrics and Yeah, Aretha Franklin herself and her just way of being in the world and way of singing makes me feel that way. And that absolutely kicking slap bass, which always does it for me in those songs.
0: In this section of the podcast, we talk about our lives in recovery. How have we experienced recovery this week? This morning was at a meeting where the topic was tradition 8 because it's august this is my second tradition 8 meeting in a couple of weeks because it's august but the focus of the sharing went different places this time than it did in the last meeting and and i think this was to some extent possibly colored by what a few of us in the meeting knew was coming right after the meeting, which I'll talk about in a moment. But there was some sharing about, and I think it also was triggered by the reading talked about how it, it, in the early days, Al-Anon ran on volunteers. And then as it grew, they needed to actually pay people for this work. There's this part of the tradition that says we can hire special workers, but that our twelfth step work remains forever non-professional, right? That's the the key to that tradition. And we got into this thread of just several people sharing about volunteering in the program. And one person got a little snippy about there's all these people who say they're just so grateful for Al-Anon, but they're not stepping up to do the work that it needs to be done to keep the program healthy, which interestingly I had also thought I might say something about because I get frustrated. Like we ask At the beginning of each of the two meetings that I go to on a regular basis, we ask if somebody's willing to read the opening at the next meeting. The little script we're reading from says, pause until somebody responds. Leave that awkward silence because somebody will eventually speak up, right? And I feel like, why is it so hard To get somebody to do something so simple as read the opening, but it is. And then when you want somebody to do something like be a group representative or something like that, it's even harder anyway. So yeah, a couple of us were a little frustrated about that and we kind of let it out. But I talk about also the flip side of that for me, which is, and this comes back to the self-honesty that we were talking about, actually, that I have to set boundaries on what I say yes to, particularly when it comes to volunteer work. I have a certain amount of time in which I can do that. I have a certain amount of energy to be able to do that sort of thing. And if I say yes to too many things, I might burn myself out. I might not do a good enough job on any of them. I might end up disappointing the people that I said yes to that I was trying to please by saying yes to. Those are all different motivations and different reasons. And I've had this experience of saying yes to too many things and then not being able to do it to the level that I wanted to do it. There was one case where I was working with a young teen on a project and I didn't put in the amount of time and effort that I felt I should put in. The kid apparently didn't see it that way, but I did. I felt like I had committed to something that I wasn't able to follow through on. And so when I think about what I can volunteer to do, I also have to think about, can I actually do this? And I was thinking as we were talking tonight, this came up for me where I have been working and I've talked about this before, but I've been working with the team youth in my church for almost a decade and a half now. At some point in there, The minister who was in charge of the children and youth program at the church came to me and said, you've been doing this for a certain amount of time and I'd like you to step back now. I was pissed. I was really pissed. Who is she to be telling me I need to step back? What I recognized after I'd had time to cool down was that, in fact, I was reaching a burnout phase with that particular role. So I stepped back, I stepped into a different role with a different group of people, still working with the teens, but in a different context with a different commitment. And I did that for a few years. And then I stepped back into working with the kids on Sundays, except with a younger group. And I did that for four years. And then COVID came along. But even before that, I was recognizing in myself that I was starting to burn out. COVID gave me the opportunity to step away and to really consider, did I have the energy to continue in that role without burning out? And when I was asked this spring, what I do that again in the fall I had to say no I need to move on to a different phase of being a member of the community doing my service but I'm doing it now in a different role I'm doing it with a different group and I'm doing it with adults rather than children and so it's a different level of energy I feel this new one's going to be challenging in different ways I think that my recovery program has really set me up to hopefully be able to do it well but we'll see I also have all that self-doubt. Like, I don't know how to do this. I think I do. And the people who ask me to do it think I do. Yeah. So that all came up while we were talking about tradition eight in the meeting this morning. I didn't say all that one in my share, obviously. Then almost right after that, we had our district al meeting. So the group representatives come together and we have to make some decisions at the district level. There were some easy things, and there were a couple of hard things. And on one of them, the discussion got a little emotional from some people, that one person stated a position and another person reacted emotionally to it. But it felt like there was, actually, there was not a base level of agreement. There was a base level of disagreement. And I finally spoke up, and I said, I feel like, Everybody has had time to say what they think. We are near the end of the time allocated for this meeting. And we have one more very important thing we need to talk about. I really think we need to bring this discussion to a close. I felt like I was trying to help us stay within the boundaries that we had set for ourselves about how long this meeting was going to take and that we were going to talk about the things that we needed to talk about. But getting back to this. How many volunteers are there? There were maybe eight group representatives at the meeting, along with some other people who were there because of maybe another role they're playing or just because they're interested. Out of over 20 meetings in the district? Yeah. How about you? How's recovery working in your life?
1: Thank you for sharing all that. This week, or last week now, I applied for a job. And that was the first job application that I had submitted since getting this current job that I have now. So since 2018, that felt like a significant step for me because it was turning what is now two and a half years, more than two and a half years of frustrations and misgivings with my current work life into the courage to change a thing that I can. I can submit a job application. I can't affect the outcome of that in any way whatsoever once it's out and done and sent. But that doesn't matter because I'm literally doing the thing that I can do to wor- work toward eventually not being in the workplace I'm in now. And that is going to be a slow process because of how the cycles of hiring and recruitment work in my industry, which are extremely slow. Like I may not know the outcome of this application for a year, just to give you a sense of how slow. Yeah. So it's a different position from which to be doing this now because I have an ongoing job where I'm safe. And don't have to be doing it with the urgency that I did last time, which was to say I would not have a job if I didn't get a job. So this is really different. And I feel like it's an exciting opportunity as opposed to a frightening, fearful, burdensome process. I remember those feelings in 2018 so vividly because when I started the process a couple of weeks ago for this one... Well, those feelings all just immediately came flooding back, even with just opening up my template for my cover letter. Like I mean, they were there ready to come out. But through doing the process, I realized, number one, I remember how to do these because I did so many of them and I'm quite good at them now. Number two, it's kind of fun when the pressure is not on in that immediate way. Like it's like I get to look at everything I've done and put it in a way that, acknowledges some of the achievements that I've had. On the flip side, that's very difficult for me because I also have a lot of struggle with self-worth around my work and perfectionism and all of those things. So it's also very difficult to work through those feelings of inadequacy and not enoughness as they come up while I'm doing that process. But it was a kind of healthy Al-Anon experience in a way because of that, because I nevertheless had to submit it. So I still had to do it regardless of whether those feelings were happening. So a little bit like step four, I guess.
0: (laughs) It's a very specialized sort of inventory, isn't it?
1: Yes, it is. It's a very specialized inventory. Yeah. And I learned some things about that job that are lowering my expectations in terms of whether I'll get an interview. But that, I think, is a good thing. I think it's good to go into this as a, let's throw one in, but let's not expect magic to come out of this. Let's just see what happens. So that's exciting. That felt good. I also had a tough reminder this week that I have work to do in my recovery when it comes to being concerned about what other people think of me and people's approval of me because I made a person in my workplace, my higher power for an entire day in a way that completely affected my state of mind and my ability to do anything. I knew that this was unreasonable or perhaps an overreaction on my part. And I knew it was because I was feeling insecure or something wasn't right already. It wasn't just that this person had not approved of something that I was doing. It was that I was already feeling very fragile about that thing or about myself in general. So it wouldn't have taken much (laughs) for me to have that feeling that that person triggered in me, I guess. It's like a big red button that's ready to press at any moment. And I had a really helpful conversation with a fellow member that evening where she used language that really brought me down to earth in relation to how worked up I was about being criticized or talked down to by this person and made me remember that this person and indeed no other people are my higher power other than my higher power. It's an important reminder for me to exercise loving detachment with people at work, mm. even when they're not being loving. So that was the big one. I too had a couple of meetings on Tradition 8 over the last couple of weeks, which is understandable. They were great. They were some of the things that made me reflect again on the importance of I'm not the expert on everything and I don't need to be the expert on everything. In fact, it would be very concerning if I were the expert on everything. And I'm also not the expert on how other people respond to me. That's not my, it's not my role. So that was great. One of the topics we had in a meeting this week was boundaries. That was one of the first things that I heard in the rooms of Alanon. In fact, I think it was one of the first things that I heard and took away from your podcast when I first started listening to it. When I was binge listening to your podcast <laughs> from from its first episodes that I could find, I was listening to one a day this is before I discovered, sorry, not before I discovered meetings. It was before I was willing to start going to meetings here locally where I am now. I had already been to my first six meetings in a different country, but that was several months before. And then there was a bad drinking episode with my partner that I was feeling a lot of isolation with because I didn't want to tell anybody that I knew here about it hadn't looked up my local meetings yet or maybe I had but just wasn't ready to go but yeah I was binge listening to your your early episodes and I remember you and your first two co-hosts talking about boundaries and I remember being really struck by how impossible that sounded for me (laughs) based on just the way I lived in the world and I, I remember thinking that's the first thing I need to learn how to do I need to learn how to exercise boundaries. So, that was probably my first big Alanon lesson in a way. And I remember that the, in the meeting this week, you, you know how sometimes in meetings you hear a topic you've heard about lots of times, but you get that extra little layer of insight or see something in a new light because of the way someone expresses it. That happened to me this week. Someone talked about an issue that led me to take away that it's possible for me to use the threat of boundaries as an excuse to actually manipulate people into doing what I want or to make them feel bad, like ultimatums, essentially. And then the worst thing about that is that I then don't follow through with those threats. And that is effectively detracting from any possibility that those boundaries are going to be effective. It just makes them totally meaningless. Something else that I really found valuable hearing in that meeting was that Because people talk a lot about setting boundaries when it comes to other people like the alcoholic or people who are getting in their face or whatever it might be. But someone actually said, boundaries are for me. Like, I have to put boundaries around myself. It goes back to that concept of the hula hoop. (laughs) And I have to be the focus in that, not the other person. Because as soon as I make the other person the focus, I'm still trying to control the situation, actually. And I'm trying to control them through my boundaries instead healthy boundaries are me focusing on myself and being lovingly compassionate and detached in relation to others and if I do that I will have richer more meaningful more genuine relationships with people because I will be freed up to have those relationships when I'm Actually, respecting my own boundaries for myself. When I don't have boundaries, I actually have very limited space for those kinds of meaningful relationships and things close in. Being boundaryless is not freeing, (laughs) even if it sounds like it might be. It's not freeing. I'm actually closing myself in. Whereas when I use boundaries around myself and not as a kind of mode of punishment for other people, that's when I have space to connect with people in a way that because i'm feeling good because i'm feeling well i can do that i can be receptive to people even when they're not at their best when i have healthy boundaries that becomes impossible when i lose my sense of boundaries so that was some stuff that i took away from those meetings on boundaries this week
0: wow thank you yeah Mm. as i recall our very first what we called pilot episode, was about boundaries. The three of us in a room with my laptop, we had no microphones or anything. And we talked for about 20 minutes about boundaries and said, yeah, we could make this work. Let's keep going. Love that. But the quality, I just sort of shudder when I think about (laughs) it. But, you know, it was honest. The next episode coming up that I'm going to record, which I'm going to record it before I get this one out, I have a guest who is going to tell her story, but we also may talk about the gift of pain and how our pain can be a gift to us. And this is actually a, a woman who has an adult children podcast. Cool. So that should be fun. We welcome your thoughts. You can join our conversation. Please leave us a voicemail. Send us an email with your feedback or questions. And Esther, how can people do that?
1: You can call and leave us a voicemail at 734-707-8795. Call right now to 734-707-8795. You can use the voicemail button on the website to join the conversation from your computer. You can also send a voice memo or email to feedback at therecovery.show. We'd love to hear from you. Share your experience, strength and hope, or your questions about today's topic of honesty, or any of our upcoming topics.
0: Which we don't know what they are.
1: (laughs) If you have a topic you'd like us to talk about, let us know. If you would like advance notice for some of our topics so that you contribute to that topic, you can sign up for our mailing list by sending an email to feedback at therecovery.show. Put email in the subject line to make it easier to spot.
0: And as we have said several times, our website is therecovery.show where we have all the information about the show. It includes notes for each episode. This one will be at therecovery.show slash 366. Links to the books or other literature that we read from, videos for the music, etc. And there was something I was going to say here. Oh, yeah. So episode 366, that means that even during a leap year, you can binge one every day for a whole year.
1: That's a great idea.
0: I can't believe that I've done that many. One episode at a time, right?
1: It's a lot of episodes. It's pretty impressive.
0: We'll take a short break before we look at your feedback. And what is our second song that you picked?
1: The second song I picked is Little Lies by Fleetwood Mac. This song, I felt, was related to me in how I would not just omit things, but also tell small, cumulative, little lies in order to bury and deny difficult things that I don't want to be honest with myself about or honest with other people about. So it's like the lies that I tell people when I'm in mind disease and the lies that I also told when my partner was active in his. Also, I like the song.
0: That's always helpful when you're picking a song that you like. (music) So we get a few pieces of listener feedback today. Jenny writes, I have just listened to the episode 332 about Steps 1 2 and 3 I'm attending meetings of Alanon in Ecuador since last March and looking for more help found you in the podcast I looked for the website and I've started to follow you I'm struggling with step 2 and this episode has been a light for my darkness and I feel great to discover through your experience my own experience of this higher power Thank you indeed I'm grateful for the service you give to all the Alanon family in the world Very grateful Jenny Thank you for writing Jenny and wow Ecuador I'm grateful that my experience with step two shone a little bit of light on yours. Thanks again for writing. Jason left us a voicemail.
3: Hi, Spencer. My name's Jason. And I wanted to make a couple of comments on and all our affairs. Originally, when I started thinking about that topic and I said, this is step 12, I'm still stumbling through steps two and three. What do I know about step twelve? What I know about all our affairs. And I slept on it for a few days and I started thinking about it. And I did consider, I guess, after some time, all the things that I've learned in the first seven months of this program. First one, step one, realizing that it was just such a cause of relief and fear and anger and sadness, all those things at once, which Of course, leads to some great acronyms, too, like HALT, and I use these in my daily affairs. The serenity prayer. I couldn't recite that until a couple months ago, but I use it and I listen to it, and it's sage advice. My sponsor calls, my sponsor contacts and meetings, and, of course, your show and everything that I've learned in this program so far and how I've taken it out and used it in my daily life and in my everyday affairs and then talking to others that know my situation and talking to our therapists and couples therapists and personal therapists and they obviously see the work that I'm putting in. Unfortunately, my wife does not and she has made the choice to move out and that's her choice. So she's, she chose alcohol, but just in general, the language and the kindness that comes through Contacts in this program have helped me and helped countless others navigate very tricky waters in this whole disease of alcoholism. And your show has been one of those blessings. So thank you and Eric and all of your co-hosts and contributors and sponsors and wish you all the best. I'm grateful. Bye.
0: Thank you, Jason, for sharing your experience and strength and hope there. I'm saddened to hear that your wife continues to choose alcohol over your marriage. There is always hope that in that choice, she may, in fact, find a bottom. As you may know from listening, I had to let my wife find her own bottom before she came into recovery for herself, which is what she needed in order to find lasting recovery. We celebrated 16 years of sobriety last week by going out to dinner. So it can happen. Richard sent a topic idea.
3: Hi, Spencer. I'm Richard, grateful member of Al-Anon in Australia. I've been coming to Al-Anon for three years. I love your show. I listen to it a lot. And it's a tremendous amount of wisdom in there. I was wondering if you'd be interested in doing a session on frustration, overcoming frustration, something I've been wrestling with lately. And in One Day at a Time in Al-Anon, for August 15, there's a very good reading on frustration, which helped me today. And I'd just be wondering, that would be up your alley. Thank you,
0: Richard, for that idea. Sounds great, and I bet other listeners would have plenty to share. We have two shares from Alina, one about imperfection and one about Al-Anon dreams.
2: Hi, this is Alina. I just wanted to share on episode number 122, which was um, entitled Imperfection. One of the overview questions was, do you feel that you have to be perfect? And growing up, I never really thought of it as being perfect. I just thought about it as being good. And I was the oldest of two kids. My sister's four and a half years younger than I am. And so I just felt I have to be an example to her and basically. My mom was a single mom from the time I was eight years old. I had to pitch in and help out and do a lot of things to help her out with my sister. And I just had a lot of responsibility and there was always a lot of pressure from my dad prior to being eight years old. I think now that I realize a lot of it had to do with his alcoholism and maybe not having the education that he should have had and maybe not having the life he should have had. I don't know. I'm just assuming because I never really got to ask him, but I don't know if that's why he put a lot of pressure on me and he wasn't abusive or mean or anything like that. It was just always, you need to be good. You need to go to school. You need to get straight A's. Your room has to look good. I don't even think I wore pants until I was like five because before that, I just always had to look nice, wear dresses. Anytime we went to any family events, it was always my mom like made all my clothes. So it was like dresses, and they were all like custom. And at the time, I'm young, so I didn't really know anything any different. But there was a lot of pressure to not do anything bad, don't be dishonest, be perfect, I guess. And I didn't really think of it as that. I just thought it as it as being a good girl. I never wanted to get in trouble, so I always had to do the right thing in my mind. And even after I was, and through my elementary, junior high, and even high school, like I didn't fall into wanting to hang out with the bad crowd. I just looked down upon those people and just felt like they were bad. I don't want to be part of that crowd. I'm not allowed to be. I don't know. I just was molded that way. Being Perfect, I guess I didn't really realize that's what I was doing. I just thought I was being a good person and doing the right thing. and coming into Allah, I realized I don't have to beat myself up when I make mistakes. It's a part of learning, it's a part of growing. I like this topic. I don't have to be perfect. there's no such thing as perfect, and I can just do the best that I can do and just let everything go and let, you know, my higher power has a plan for me and just let that take in effect Thank you guys for letting me share. I was going to share on episode number 123, which was about Al Anon dreams. It's funny because I tend to have these dreams from now on, and, and I don't know what causes it. It doesn't have to be like an incident that happens in real life, but sometimes I think, what is my higher power trying to tell me? Am I being reminded of stuff? But sometimes I'll have these dreams about my qualifier and just it reverts back to, they're, they're like bad dreams, actually. They're not even good dreams and just, being yelled at and talked to in a certain way or my feelings are extremely hurt and sometimes they seem so real. I'm literally emotionally breaking down and crying and feeling some pain in these dreams. They don't last very long. They're actually quite short and then I'll wake up, I'll feel a certain way and it affects me the rest of the day and it's always in the back of my mind and I have to dig deep in my tools of the program and just, it's almost like it actually happened for some reason. I know that they happen less and less over the years, the more I'm into my program and everything like that. It's just interesting that this this episode came up because I do experience these dreams and it was just interesting to hear other people share about their experiences too. I know that my qualifier talks about him having relapse dreams and stuff like that and in the beginning, it used to bother me. It used to make me like worry, is something going to happen? But I think because of Al and on, I realized my dreams come subconsciously. like so not like I force them or anything like that. And just the same with his. Anyways, I just really enjoyed the topic. I hope everyone's doing well. Thank you for letting me share.
0: Thanks, Selena, for sharing. Esther, what is our last song that you picked?
2: Our last song
1: selection is Policy of Truth by Depeche Mode, which you can listen to at therecovery.show slash 366. Although this song seems to be about the negative consequences of honesty, for me, the way I link it to my Alanon recovery is that it's actually about letting go of outcomes because I can be honest and I don't always get the response that I want or the outcome that I want, even if I did the right thing and was honest. The the part of the lyrics that I relate to that through is, you will always wonder how it could have been if you'd only lied. It's too late to change events. It's time to face the consequence for delivering the proof in the policy of truth.
0: Yeah. I got the music playing in my head right now.
1: It's a great song.
0: Thank you for listening and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we did not talk about a problem you are facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. The understanding, love, and peace growing you one day at a time.